If you would take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 6. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday we ended by looking briefly at the passage of the sending out of the twelve. And that's where we'll begin today, to sort of back up um, by way of review, but also to expand a bit. So if you look at verses 7 through 13 of Mark chapter 6. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Things to consider, and this we looked at briefly last week. These are specific instructions to the disciples at a particular time and place. Jesus sends out the twelve, so there's six pairs. And I, I think it's only in Galilee. Um, they're in, in that province. Uh, Matthew's account, uh, Jesus tells them, don't go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. These are, in fact, um, what one person has called emergency instructions for a swift and dangerous mission. It is not a program for the continuing life of the church after Easter. So we shouldn't think, oh, this is, this is the way all those who minister should live. This is a very specific case. Dangerous missions, we'll see more on that in just a bit. Since they're called to be followers and disciples of Jesus, they've been with Jesus. They have heard his teaching. He has explained various aspects to them, particularly meanings of the parables. They have seen demonstrations of his power over evil spirits, over sick, and over death. And now he seen, sends them out to preach what they have heard and to do what, as they have seen. The sent one is the man who is, he is the man or he's considered as the man who commissioned him. He is the representative. And so these are the representatives of Jesus as he sends them out. In chapter 3, verse 14, when he chose the 12, they are referred to as disciples whom he designated apostles. And in a minute, we'll get, or a few minutes, we'll get to verse number 30, and we are told the apostles gathered around Jesus. So they are the representatives, the sent ones. That's what apostle means, one who has sent, and he sends them out. They have a twofold task. They are to preach, they preach a message of repentance, and they are to demonstrate the power of God. Jesus preached repentance, so that should also be the message that they preach. And if you were to ask the average person today, what does repentance mean? If you tell someone to repent, what does that mean? I think most people would say, well, that means give up your sins and become a Christian. And certainly that is a part of it. But repentance means also to turn away from the way we think things should be and to turn back to God. And the Jews are being called back to their loyalty to the God of Israel. The listeners in that time, they would have understood what repentance was about because this is what the prophets had been preaching all along. And so if you look at verse number 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. 
And they also demonstrated God's power over spirits and illness. In their living, they were to demonstrate a complete dependence upon God, total dependence upon God. Um, for food, for shelter, the only thing that they were allowed to take is a staff. They were not allowed to take any extra food, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt, and only wear a pair of sandals and not take an extra tunic, an extra coat, if you wish. And then when they get to a town, they're supposed to stay in that house. You know, they go to a house, and if the people welcome, they stay there. That used to really bother me because I'm thinking, boy, that, that could end up being a burden on that family. But I think what it was intended is if you stay at that house for a while and you're like, oh, I'm going to go over and stay at brother so-and-so's house, it is as much to dishonor this person to say, you know, they have better food than you do or their beds are more comfortable. They are to stay in one particular place. And then there is the possibility of rejection. That's not necessarily something you want to tell people. Oh, I'm going to send you out. Oh, by the way, people might not listen to you. They might reject you. There are towns, there are places that would not offer hospitality, that would not tolerate their message, and the disciples are instructed to shake the dust off their feet. The disciples do as they are instructed. They went out, they preached, they drove out many demons, and they anointed many sick people with oil. They are representatives of Jesus. He had commissioned them. They are going in his name. They are preaching in his name. Last week, I brought up the matter of anointing the sick with oil. And in the ancient world, oil had many uses, including as a physical remedy, as, as a medicine. You may remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The question is, when the disciples anointed people, were they doing it as medicine, as a remedy? And I would say no. It was rather, and the people understood this, it was symbolic of the presence of God, the grace of God, and in fact the power of God to heal. Because if you think about anointing with oil in the Old Testament, it's something that was done for prophets or for kings. Um, And so to be anointed with oil was almost a setting aside to say, this is the work of God in your life. Now we come to verse number 14. And if you're just sitting down and reading aloud to yourself, you would almost get whiplash at this point because the change in narrative is so abrupt. It's actually almost parenthetical, from verses 14 to 29, uh, because when we get to verse number 30, it'll go back to, oh yeah, the apostles came back and told Jesus what they had done. But in between, we have these verses. It is worth noting that Mark spends more time on, and more space on this particular aspect of the story than do Matthew or Luke. John doesn't mention it at all in his gospel. So you have to ask yourself, why? Why does Mark spend so much time on this particular incident? Well, in the Gospel of Mark, there are two passion stories. The passion story of John the Baptist and that of Jesus of Nazareth. That which we remember this week. Both Matthew and Luke spend more time on the message of John than does Mark. I find that interesting. Mark is more focused on his death. 
Look at verse number 14, if you would. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had been, become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Let me give you some background, which has become important, I think, as, as we go along. This Herod was actually known as Herod Antipas. It, it's really confusing because all the rulers were named Herod, and then they had a second name. But this man is always referred to in the Gospels as Herod. He was a tetrarch. That is, Palestine had been divided into four divisions, and he was over one-fourth of that over Galilee and Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay? This means that Herod was not a king, and that he had no kingdom. Keep that in mind. Then why does Mark refer to him as King Herod? I think this is ironic. I think he's like, King Herod. Everyone knew, in fact, that he wasn't a king, but we will see uh, its importance as we go along. Herod had heard about Jesus. Specifically, his interest is in the miracles. He's interested because he had John the Baptist beheaded, but John the Baptist never did any miracles. He preached a powerful message, but he never did any miracles. In fact, in John chapter 10, we read, um, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, this is what the people said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John had said about this man was true. So Herod's thinking is, okay, this guy John, sort of a weird guy, you know, what he wore, what he ate, and he's preaching this message, but he never did anything spectacular, never did any miracles. Now there's somebody doing miracles. Aha, what happened is I killed John, but John has been raised from the dead, and now that he's been raised, he has all this supernatural power. Um, Herod is wrong, but it prepares us as the readers for the possibility of resurrection that someone could be raised from the dead. And in fact, that will happen to Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Something quite strange there. Herod's dealings with, with John were quite contradictory. He had him arrested and bound and put in prison, he did this because of John's message. John said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is how it goes. Herod Philip was in the south. Herod Antipas, this particular Herod, is in the north. And one time they got together, and Herod Antipas 
was infatuated with Philip's wife. And so they began an illicit affair and they said, okay, you divorce, you divorce your husband, I'll divorce my wife and let's get married. And that's what happened. And John says, this is unlawful. It's not right. It's not right for you to have your brother's wife. He rebuked him for doing this. Um, and I assume that Herod didn't like hearing this, but we're also told that he liked to listen to him. It's Herodias who was very unhappy about this. She nursed a grudge. She wanted to kill him, but she didn't have the power to do that because of Herod. But an opportunity was now to present itself. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, immediately, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought, his, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. If I were to ask you, what was the name of Herodias's daughter? Not Herod's daughter, he was the stepdaughter, she was the stepdaughter. What was the name of Herodias's daughter? I think most of you would say Salome. But you will notice that her name is not given in this account. In fact, it's not given in Matthew or Luke as well. There is a Salome who is mentioned in the gospel, in the gospel of Mark. We believe that she was the mother of John and James, the sons of Zebedee. So she was the wife of Zebedee. At the crucifixion, this is in chapter 15, some men were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And then, in the very next verse, but we have the chapter divisions, on that first Easter morning, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. There is a Salome, a righteous woman, but this woman is not named. Josephus is the one who gives us the name, but the scripture does not give us her name. She is nameless. I think that's important. The second thing I would point out is the nature of her dance is not given, only that it pleased Herod. And yet commentators believe it to be, well, well listen, one writes, we can well imagine the erotic and suggestive manner in which the probably half-naked girl danced. That's not in the text, is it? Another writes, the dance was unquestionably lascivious. Maybe, uh, but we're not told that. We're not told that. We're simply told that it pleased Herod and his guests. Uh, I always get worried when people sort of go beyond what we find in Scripture. Herod makes a promise. 
ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. By the way, we're not told this, and okay, I, I don't want to go beyond scripture, but it could be that Herod had been drinking quite a bit. It's his birthday party, and he enjoyed the dance, and so he makes his promise. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. He promises with an oath. If you know the Old Testament, this may sound familiar. Let me read to you. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand, the gold scepter. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. And then she says, well, I'd like to have a a dinner party and have you and Haman come. And um, while they're at the dinner party, they were drinking wine. The king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. I think this is hyperbole. Okay, it's not to be taken literally, but it is basically to say, I will give you whatever you want. It is ironic that Herod says this, I'll give you half my kingdom. He has no kingdom. He's not a king. He's a governor. So half of nothing is nothing. I mean, there's real irony at play here. Basically, he's saying, I'll give you whatever you want. And he commits himself with an oath. So she runs to her mom. What should I ask for? And now Herodias has her chance. She wants the head of John the Baptist. And so the girl hurries out and says, I want you to give me right now, interesting enough, not, you know, not in a couple, right now I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was really distressed. He, I think he liked John. He liked to listen to him. He knew that he was a righteous man. Um, but there were witnesses He had made a promise. He had sworn an oath. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And so, painted into a corner, he felt like he couldn't couldn't, uh, go back. There's an interesting story of a girl in Sunday school who said that Herod was such a silly man that when the girl said, I want, uh, well, he said, I'll give you half of my kingdom. She said, I want the head of John the Baptist. It's like, well, that's in the other half of my kingdom. Okay, that's not in this particular half. I think if Herod had been thinking straight, he could have gotten out of this. Uh, It's like, yeah, I promised you something. I didn't promise your mom something. I think he knew exactly. He was being played by his wife. And so uh, the executioner is sent out, and John is beheaded, and the head is presented to the girl, which she gave to her mother. And then we are told in verse number 29, On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Two passion stories. One is a crucifixion, but the other is a beheading. But in both cases, the body is laid in a tomb. John is seen as the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one who announced the Messiah. But his death also serves as a bridge of sorts. 
This story is reminiscent of something we read in the Old Testament, the story of Ahab and Jezebel, where Ahab wanted the vineyard of Naboth. And by the way, they both happened in Galilee, in the northern part. In the Old Testament was Israel, the northern kingdom. And Naboth's like, I can't sell this to you. It belongs to my family. This is, you know, from Moses or Joshua, when they divide up the land, this has been in my family. And so Ahab pounded. Jezebel planned, and she had two men say, we've heard Naboth blaspheme God, and so he's stoned to death, and Ahab gets the vineyard. Here again, it is the wife who schemes, and she doesn't do it directly, she does it through her daughter, but she gets what she wants. In both cases, it is the death of a righteous man. Also, we... As we heard earlier, Herod thought that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's who's doing all these miraculous things. Um, Before resurrection, however, is a death. And John is beheaded and he dies. And so Mark presents us with the two passion narratives, that of John the Baptist and that of Jesus. Now we get back to the main story, which is the disciples had been sent out and now they've come back. Look, if you would, at verse number 30. Mark chapter 6, verse number 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Things to note. The 12 apostles, the sent ones, return to Jesus and they give the report. How long they were gone, we're not told. Was it a week? Was it a month? We're simply not told. But now they come back and they report all that they had done and all that they had taught. Let's not forget what they taught. They preached the gospel of repentance and they also did miraculous things. Okay. But they were so busy because people are following them that they didn't have, even have time to eat. And the solution is you need to rest. You need to take some time and recuperate. They are doing something by the power of God, but they're still human. And they need to get some rest. They are ministers. They've been sent out on ministry, but they are humans. And so Jesus says, let's go and you need some rest. By the way, this is true of Jesus as well. From time to time, he will go off away from the crowd. So they went by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but the rest is interrupted. Look at verses 33 and 34. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So they got to the other shore, which is Bethsaida, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, even before Jesus and the disciples got there. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. These two events set the stage for this next miracle, which is perhaps one of the best known in the Gospels. The 12 disciples and Jesus go into the wilderness to a remote place. And the people follow them to this remote place, to this wilderness. It is in this wilderness that Jesus will provide for the crowd. But before going any further, I want to note the expression that they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is an Old Testament expression. 
We hear it in Zechariah. We saw it when we went through the book of Ezekiel. But we hear it from Moses. Moses has been told by God, I want you to go up on the mountain and look at the promised land. You can't go in because of what you did. And Moses is like, who's going to replace me? Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God of the, the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him. People need a leader. Otherwise, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus sees the crowd, and that's precisely what he sees. People who have no leadership, they are sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them. So what does he do? He began teaching them many things. He doesn't do miraculous things at this point. He begins to teach them. But there is more to come. Look, if you would, I'm going to read a large passage here from verses 35 to 45 here in Mark 6. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place. It's wilderness, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take eight months' wages, or eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? By the way, the implied answer is no, we're not going to do that. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. And Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full, basketfuls, of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten were 5,000, was 5,000. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So apparently it was wrong. They didn't get to Bethsaida yet. They are on their way, and this is where Jesus performs this miracle. It's a familiar story, I think, to most. There are things to consider. First of all, I think the total lack of compassion on the part of the disciples. Send these people home. Uh, you know, they need to go to the town, or if not home, to the nearest town and buy something to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they're like, that's going to cost a lot of money. As much as to say, yeah, we're not doing that. Okay, eight months wages. Yeah, we're not going to spend that kind of money on these people, people we don't even know. By the way, it strikes me as unlikely that any of the towns in that area would have enough bread to feed 5,000 additional people. I mean, that that would put a real burden on the neighboring villages. I I just don't think it's possible. So Jesus says, what do you have? There are five loaves and there are two fish. Jesus instructs the people to sit down on the grass in groups of 50s and 100s. By the way, wilderness doesn't necessarily mean desert, okay? It means a remote place. 
he takes this food and he looks to heaven and he breaks it. He gives thanks to God. And then he begins to hand it out to the disciples. And we don't know how this, how this happened. That does he break it and something miraculously appears? What we do know is that he fed 5,000 men. We're assuming there are women and children with them. And there are 12 basketfuls that are left over. Everybody ate all they needed. They were all full and satisfied. And then in a dramatic turnabout, Jesus sends the disciples off. It's like, you guys take off, get in the boat and take off while I dismiss the crowd. One would have expected the other thing, you know, here, let me do the benediction, dismiss the crowd, and then I'll get on the boat with you guys and we'll go over uh, to Bethsaida. And instead, uh, the disciples who wanted to sort of send the people off, they are sent off by Jesus instead while Jesus dismisses the crowd. Now something else happens. Verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Isn't, doesn't this strike you as something? After the events of that day, Jesus went up to pray. Um, I've mentioned this before because we saw this in chapter 3 before he called the 12 apostles. Um, when we read the New Testament, we need to do so through the lens of the Old Testament. So the idea of going up on a mountain to pray isn't just like, I want to get away from the people. But in the Old Testament, a mountain was, in fact, a special place. Uh, it's where Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac, where Solomon built the temple. It's, Mount Sinai is where Moses received the law. It's also where he saw the burning bush. Mount Carmel, we saw this uh, earlier in 1 Kings 18. There's a contest, of, so to speak, between the priest of Baal and Elijah. It's like, you build an altar, I'll build an altar, kill an ox, put it there, kill an ox, put it here, and let's see which of our gods will in fact send down fire to burn up the sacrifice. And it is there on the mount of Mount Carmel that Elijah prays this wonderful prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then sure enough, fire comes from heaven and burns up the sacrifice. Jesus needed the time alone. He needed to be alone to pray. This is astonishing, I think, on different levels, what he needed to pray. Uh, but also, think about this. this think about it. At the end of a long day, when you come home, is your, info, your first impulse like, I need to pray? Is it not to sort of fall under the couch or under a chair, turn on the TV and veg out for a bit? Um, and yet here we see Jesus after this busy day of teaching and all the things that he did, his first impulse is to pray. Quite astonishing. Verse 47. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Interesting enough, not walking to them, but to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because 
They all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed in the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. I want to focus on verse number 52, because it's the one that I struggled with the most and that I find the most troubling. What was it that they were to understand about the loaves? Do we understand about the loaves? And why say that their hearts were hardened? This is a rather harsh statement to make. When I think of someone in scripture whose heart is hardened, I think of Pharaoh. I don't think of the disciples. And so why would Mark say such a thing that their hearts were hardened? After all, these men had seen the miraculous, the calming of the storm that had happened earlier when they were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. They themselves had cast out evil spirits and healed the sick. They had just witnessed the miraculous feeding of 5,000 in the wilderness. Why would Mark say such a thing? I'll suggest three things. First of all, you may remember what we saw at the end of chapter 4. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. This is in Mark 4.34. I would suggest this doesn't simply include what Jesus said, but what he did. It means that the feeding of the 5,000 was a parable of sorts. It was pointing to a greater truth. It isn't just like, ooh, look at what Jesus can do. He can miraculously feed 5,000 people. It was pointing to something, and they, they didn't get it. They simply didn't get it. They did not see the truth of God as provider and source of life. They didn't get it. Secondly, the matter of understanding isn't purely intellectual. And this is something we may struggle with because it seems in society, but in the church as well, we have like two camps, those who take a much more emotional approach and those who take a much more intellectual approach. And I think, in fact, what we are called to do is to take a faith approach. That is that we are to believe what God has said. These disciples had seen and had experienced. It wasn't they just heard in their head what Jesus had said. They had actually experienced the reality of the power of God. It's not some abstraction, some theological point to discuss. They had actually seen the real thing, and they didn't get it. Thirdly, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we'll see this as we go along, we will see that the disciples are characterized by non-understanding. And in many ways, they're not that different than the opponents of Jesus, which is somewhat troubling. They failed to recognize the unique character of Jesus. They failed to see Jesus and his work in the context of the Old Testament. Stop and think a minute, okay? You've got a large group of people. You're in the wilderness. They have nothing to eat, and somehow food has been provided for them. Does it ring any bells, anybody? Disciples, does this, not, does this not remind you of Moses, the wilderness, manna, quail? Somehow the disciples didn't get that. They simply didn't get it. As the Lord had provided for Israel in the wilderness... So the Lord provided for this crowd in the wilderness. They didn't seem to make the connection. And the same Lord that created the world also ruled the seas. 
In Psalm 104, let me read to you. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And then there is Psalm 95. This happens with a number of psalms with me. I like the first part of the psalm, and then I want to stop. I mean, there have been times when I've wanted to read Psalm 95 to begin our worship. And I'm like, yeah, I would, except for those last few verses. Listen. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his For he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is where I want to stop. This is the part where like, okay, Damon, don't go any farther because it gets rather dark. But if you listen, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested me, uh, tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Sound like the disciples, anybody? Sounds like them, doesn't it? They had seen what Jesus had done, and they didn't make the connection. They didn't make the connection. And so Mark tells us that their hearts are hardened. In this passage that we've looked at, we see a series of contrasts. You have Herod and his buddies at a banquet. And then you have these people in the wilderness with bread and fish. Which meal would you rather be at? You have disciples healing and exercising evil spirits. And then disciples who are afraid when they see Jesus because they think he's a ghost. You have the compassion of Jesus on the crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed to eat. And you have the disciples saying, send them away. We're not going to feed them. We also have the passion of John the Baptist and the passion that is to come of the Lord Jesus. In closing, I'd like you just to take note of the fact John was killed for telling Herod and Herodias, you guys shouldn't be married. That's why he was killed. Okay. I, I can't help but wonder if in today's world that would be considered hate speech. Telling someone, yeah, you guys shouldn't be married. It's like, well, that's, that's rather judgmental. That's rather intolerant. Who are you to tell us what to do? And yet John preached the truth. And we are to do the same. And we should not be surprised if, in fact, we may be persecuted. Repentance says you need to change your way of thinking. Who are we to tell people that they need to change their way of thinking? But that's the good news. The good news is you've been thinking incorrectly. And now we have the correct way to think that Jesus has come into the world 
to save us. It is the good news. I think oftentimes we think of persecution of, oh, you're going to be persecuted because of what you preach. You know, when you say people are sinners. Possibly. But in the case of John, he simply said, what you're doing isn't right. And if we were to say to people, what you're doing isn't right, yeah, that, that could result in persecution. I read some time ago, not that long, maybe a couple years ago, that the Archbishop of Chicago said, um, I believe that I will die in my bed and my successor will die in prison and his successor will be executed. It's like, well, that, not in this country, that couldn't happen. Uh, John, Herod saw him as a righteous man and he cut off his head. We are God's people. By his grace, we have repented. We have the good news. We are to share the good news. But like the disciples, we shouldn't be surprised if we are rejected. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are certainly parts of what we've read today that we can't relate to that someone could request and get the head of someone on a platter. Just seems so violent, something we can't relate to. And all because John said, you guys shouldn't be married to each other. And we imagine that that couldn't happen, at least not around here, not now. But the good news, the call to repentance is an offense to so many people. Because it implies, or says directly, the way that you think is wrong. The way that you are acting is wrong. You need to change how you think and how you are acting. But it isn't primarily judgmental or intolerant. It's like going to a doctor and being told that we are sick. The doctor isn't judging us. He is, in fact, diagnosing our situation. Forgive us when in our speech we are judgmental, when we are less than compassionate, like the disciples. And help us to remember that we are, in fact, sharing the good news, which is preceded by bad news that there's a problem and it needs to be fixed. May our hearts not be hardened. May we not forget the wonderful things you have done, and perhaps not in our lives, but in the lives of your people throughout human history, that we can, in fact, share and rejoice in what you have done for them. And may we trust you that you know what is best, and you are doing what is best in our lives. On this day, we remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem and the people cheered.
May we also remember that in a few short days they will be calling for his death. Such is the condition of the human heart. Such is the condition of our hearts apart from your grace. And this coming week, this holy week, may we think on these things as we remember the suffering, the passion of our Savior. But may we also remember that Easter is coming. I thank you for bringing us together today. I thank you for your love and your great compassion. And we pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.